0: Welcome to Breezeline, where next-level internet speeds mean next-level productivity. Whether it's back to school, back to work, or back to reality, don't let slow internet slow down your game. Kick it up a notch with a game-changing offer of 500 megabits per second of lightning-fast speed for only $39.99 per month. Choose Breezeline and get next-level internet and faster speeds backed by a fiber-powered network. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Breezeline.com to learn more. This is... Mack, Mack, Mack syndrome. Hello! Anybody home? I think chainsaw. Like Our generation may not remember the moon landing, but we remember moon boots. If you owe a few cavities to candy cigarettes, learn your adverbs from schoolhouse rocks, burned your shins on a hot metal slide with sharp edges, exploding pop rocks for science. And you still want your MTV? Then this podcast is for you. Dancing with Myself is dedicated to the decade of excess, the 1980s. So pull up your leg warmers and let's get physical. You're listening to Dancing with Myself. I'm Heather, and let's talk a little bit about sci-fi movies. A film that's vision of the future is so immersive that no movie maker since has been immune, and that could be due to the wild source material written by Philip K. Dick, but even more to the genius of Ridley Scott. It wasn't Scott's first spin at sci-fi, of course. 1979's Alien would have been enough to establish him as a master of the genre. But Blade Runner went further, envisioning a 2019 Los Angeles of endless night and rain, a city that had cool flying cars and neon-lit billboards, but poverty and hustle as well. This was a world far away from the shiny futures of the 1960s and 70s, the utopias of Star Trek, or even the bright white dystopias of Logan's run. Blade Runner was certainly influenced by the banged up visions of Alien and Star Wars, but it offered something more. Instead of silver leme jumpsuits, this future had retreated to a 1940s noir fashions. Instead of replicators or soylent green, it had Chinese food and street vendors. It also had a far sexier future than those largely bloodless affairs, although that means it comes with a healthy side order of misogyny and sexual exploitation, which was carried forward into 2017's equally awesome sequel, Blade Runner 2049. But the world building is only a fraction of its appeal. The plot is twisting and complicated and still a subject of speculation. Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, is the titular Blade Runner, a kind of officially sanctioned bounty hunter set on the tail of four escaped replicants. These are artificial beings that are advertised as, quote, more than human, implanted with memories, but limited to a four-year lifespan. The replicants are supposed to work only the off-world colonies, but these four have come to Earth and must be hunted down and retired or executed. But are the re- replicants really inhuman, or has humanity lost its way? Deckard must also figure out how Sean Young's Rachel fits in, the replicant who has no idea she is a replicant, and battle his own growing feelings for her. But that's only the tip of the iceberg of unanswered questions here. The audience doesn't know what devastated the environment and killed almost all on Earth. We don't know why someone made the replicants so hard to find when they are also so hard to control. There's no other way of keeping track beyond a reaction assessment called the Voigt Kampf test. And if empathy is the defining feature of humanity according to the test, how come the humans can show so little empathy for their creations? Could any human in this reality pass the Voight-Kampff? Or is the purported villain, Rudger Hauer's Roy Batty, the film's true hero? It's Batty who has the most tragic narrative arc. He's stronger and smarter than the humans who created him. He has seen the wonders of the universe, fallen in love, and fought for his right to exist. But he is under a death sentence and is all too aware of that fact. Quote, "...all those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in the rain, he mourns, time to die." Such philosophical meatiness has kept the movie's cult growing for four decades now, wiping out the memory of its box office underperformance and initially mixed reviews. It is a film that will leave audiences forced to consider our definition of humanity. The film was released in June of 1982, and as I mentioned before, it's based on a Philip K. Dick story, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? But the word android wasn't used because it sounded too comical on screen. Replication is a term used in cloning and sounded equally futuristic, but less goofy. The yo-yo in the 1980s was like the fidget spinner in the 2010s. It was considered the staple toy in every kid's bedroom as they were cheap and incredibly entertaining. Personally, I could never get the thing to roll back up and would spend countless hours trying to make it work. I still can't do it to this day. But you can be sure the yo-yo wasn't invented in the 80s. They've been around for a long time. Try terracotta yo-yos from ancient Greece and even Egyptian temple wall paintings with yo-yos. Even King George IV, the previous Prince of Wales, was playing with one in the early 18th century. The French also called it le The yo-yo didn't become popular in the western world until Pedro Flores, a Filipino who immigrated to the United States, opened a factory in Santa Barbara, California. It became popular during the 1930s when Flores' company, now owned by Donald F. Duncan, ran promotions with the Hearst newspaper empire. In 1946, after Duncan purchased the company, he moved it to Luck, Wisconsin, where the maple needed to produce the yo-yo was plentiful. After mass producing them at a rate of 3600 per hour, Luck became known as the yo-yo capital of the world. Even today, yo-yos are still popular due to competitions, exhibitions, and numerous companies producing their own versions. The Swatch Watch was the essential 80s accessory, popular due to its color and the vibrant loud designs it was also significantly cheaper compared to the traditional european watch and yet bold and created to draw attention this combined with an aggressive marketing campaign was what ultimately created this watch craze while the luxury european watches topped eight grand and hey this was during the 80s this Swatch watch sold between $20 and $37.50, depending on where it was bought. Each watch is made from strong plastic. It was water and shock resistant and had a battery that lasted three years instead of one. It was also considered to be the Nokia of watches, durable for the rugged lifestyle. While it doesn't quite reach the quality of the European watch, it was marketed as a low-cost quality watch as the majority were sold in jewelry stores. During the late 70s and early 80s, the trendsetters were getting tired of those traditional bulky leather and metal watches. So Swiss designers Elmar Mock Ernst, Tomp, and Jacques Muller came up with a more slender, mass-producible design of a wristwatch that could be made by machines instead of handcrafted. It was deliberately constructed with lightweight plastic and made up of 60 neat and tidy components within a closed system. This meant, other than the battery, it was not made to be repairable, but rather to be a disposable piece of plastic once it stopped working. It wasn't long before the marketing potential of the swatch was noticed, particularly by Nicholas Hayek, who founded the Swatch Group as its CEO in 1983, and thus the brand took off. But it was more of a fashion statement than anything else, which is why it was sold at chic boutiques, department stores, and even sporting goods stores. There are giants among us. And their impact is huge. They are the men and women building and sustaining our Navy's next generation submarines. They are giants in what they do. Because they work in a place where they can grow. Where they can learn the skills to build careers as powerful as the beasts they forge. If you're ready to go big, get on board. We build giants at buildsubmarines.com.